very important lesson I hope people will write down. Time management is pain management. Let me say that again. Time management is pain management. I think that this the critical skill of this century is the power to be indistractable. We spend so much of our time and money protecting our stuff. We have alarms on our cars, we put our money in bank accounts, but when it comes to our time, do we don't really protect it, right? We let anybody take it as much as we want. Distraction is nothing new. Plato talked about this very same problem 2,500 years before the iPhone. People have always been distracted. This is not a new problem. Facebook and, and the iPhone did not create this problem. It's not our fault that the world is such a potentially distracting place. It's not your fault that Facebook exists, that your cell phone is, is so engaging, that uh, there's so much crazy news happening in the world that wants to distract you. None of that stuff is your fault, but it is your responsibility because this stuff isn't going away. We have to learn how to deal with the world we live in uh, or else it's going to deal with us. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business. Where we do it from an immersive but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com well ladies and gentlemen it's my absolute pleasure to welcome to unstoppable today nia il nia it is great to have you here mate Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Now, um, one of the questions I always like to ask our guests, and, and this one is going to be an interesting one. I always ask people, you know, if you're sitting down at a dinner party that has you know, got an incredibly broad mix of people, but you don't know anyone there and they don't know you, uh, and there's a, a moment where everything goes silent and someone turns to you and asks you in front of everyone, so Nia, what is it that you do? How do you answer that question? Yeah, so I'm what you call a behavioral designer. So I use consumer psychology to help companies build the kind of products and services that people use because they want to, not because they have to. Uh, so that's that's basically my my job. Uh, I taught for many years at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and I've written two books on the topic. The first book is about how to build habit-forming products. So how do we make all kinds of products and services more engaging so that we can build healthy habits in people's lives? And the second book is about how do we break bad habits. It's called Indistractable, how to control your attention and choose your life. And it's all about how can we uh, destroy distraction, basically. How can we do what we say we're going to do every single day of our life? Yeah, that's actually, that's a, that's a good balance there. So out of curiosity, mate, your, your job, your jam is really learning how to make things, and correct me if I'm using the wrong terminology here, but addictive, is that right? How to make product no, and services addictive? So. Yeah, so addiction is, so none of my books have addiction anywhere in them other than saying, telling people not to build addictions. <laughs> so an addiction is a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user. So as a business owner, you would never want to create an addictive product because that would entail by definition hurting people. So I do not advocate for addiction. What I advocate for is habits. Habits, we have good habits as well as bad habits. 
But if we can harness the power of habits through the products that people use, we can help them build happier, healthier, more connected, more productive lives. Uh, so I work with companies uh, like Kahoot, the world's largest educational software company to help get kids hooked onto learning. I work with companies like Fitbod, uses the hook model to get people hooked to exercise. I've worked with companies like the New York Times and uh, media companies and banks, uh, a few Australian banks, in fact, uh, to help people save money and, and engage with, with uh, current events. So there's all kinds of ways that we can use the same psychology that drives gaming and social media and all these companies. We can steal those uh, that, that psychology and use that in the products that we build ourselves to help people build good habits in their lives. I notice you, you're using the word habits and hook, and I love I love I love the way that you put those together. And your goal is to create a hook with the product that creates a habit where the person person is going back and, and using that product on a repeated basis. So. Is there a model, like when you're trying to create a hook for a product or a service, is there a model that you can go into and regardless if it's a, you know, a tangible product or a service that you can overlay to create the type of um, desire or the, the, the type of need that you're talking about? Absolutely. So that's what the hook model is all about. And it's the basis of my first book, Hooked, which came out of this class that I taught for many years at Stanford. And so the, the hook model has these four basic steps of a trigger, an action, a reward, and an investment. And it's through successive cycles through these hooks, this is how customer behaviors are shaped, how tastes are formed, and how these habits take hold. So any business, whether it's online, offline, consumer web, enterprise, doesn't matter. As long as the product is used with sufficient frequency mm. and benefits the user, we can turn that product behavior into a habit. Yeah, right. And so can you give me some examples of perhaps... Uh, businesses that you've gone into, looking at them before, you know, perhaps a great product, but just not doing the 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 hook method the right way, and the things that you've actually done, and what's actually been a consequence of that. Sure. So there's there's companies in pretty much every conceivable industry that have used the hook model now to build healthy habits in people's lives. Uh, so most of the products that I've worked with, you know, I've never worked with the the big gaming companies or social media companies. Uh, they, that's where I learned these techniques and, and kind of stole them and democratized them for everyone else to use. But let's, let's use an example as opposed to one of my clients that maybe people aren't as familiar with like Kahoot or, or many of these other clients. Um, let's, let's maybe do an example of a company that people find themselves getting hooked to. And so we can explain why we feel so yeah, hooked. Good call. So take, take your pick. You want to do, uh, well, YouTube, uh, Instagram. I think Facebook is, a, is the big one because it's got, it's, it's captured quite a significant, you know, spread of different demographics, you know, different to some of the perhaps smaller verticals of, of those other platforms. What is it that makes Facebook so, and I'm going to use the word addictive or, or, or habit forming. Habit forming. Yeah. Yeah. And for some people it is addictive. So, so addiction is, is a tricky term because, yeah. uh, you know, I, I I kind of bristle. I'm sorry to bristle at that term a bit because I think a lot of people blame their overuse on the addiction, but that's kind of silly, right? It's it's like saying that um, uh, you know you know alcohol is very addictive, right? But clearly, we're not all alcoholics. Not everyone who has a a, a pint with dinner or a glass of wine at lunch, they're not alcoholics. And so it's it's not helpful, I think, to say that all social media is addicting everyone. And that's the reason we can't stop using it. Some people are absolutely addicted to video games or social media, just like some people are addicted to alcohol, but it's not all of us, right? There's a small percentage that certainly are, and we need to help those people for sure. And I talk about in the book, what we, what our moral obligation is to those folks. But for the vast majority, we're not 
addicted, we are uh, habituated and at times distracted. Yeah, and so that's actually what my second book, Indistractable, is all about, about how do we break those bad habits? But to answer your question, how do we, uh, how do we understand uh, the hook model by giving this example of Facebook? So here's Facebook's hook. It starts with an external trigger. Uh, there are two types of triggers. We'll get back to the second kind in a minute. But the first kind is an external trigger. So it starts with a ping, a ding, a ring, something in your environment that tells you what to do next. So in the case of the Facebook app, it's a, a, a notification on your phone telling you that, hey, one of your friends posted something or liked something or did something that takes you to the next step of the hook, which is the action phase. The action phase is defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. The easiest thing you can do to get that reward, right? To get what you're looking for. So in the case of Facebook, it's just open the app. Simple as that. Open the app and start scrolling. Now, what happens when you start scrolling is the third step of the hook takes hold. And this is really the engine behind the hook model. It's called the variable reward. Variable rewards come out of the work of B.F. Skinner, a very prominent psychologist in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, Skinner did this, this work on what he called intermittent reinforcement. And it came out of experiments he did with pigeons. So he, he took these pigeons, he put them in a little box, and he gave them a disc to peck at. And every time they pecked at the disc, they would receive a little reward, a little food pellet. And he could quickly train his pigeons to peck at the disc whenever they were hungry, right? So what, what he found, though, unfortunately, was that one day he actually ran out of these food pellets. He didn't have enough one day. So he couldn't afford to give a food pellet every time the pigeon pecked at the disc. He could only give it to them once in a while. So sometimes the pigeon would peck at the disc, no reward, no food pellet. The next time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. And what Skinner observed was that the rate of response, the number of times the pigeon pecked at the disc increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. Hmm. And of course that happens uh, with pigeons and it also is true for humans. Mm. So in all sorts of experiences that you find mystery, uncertainty, variability, this causes us to engage, it causes us to focus and it's highly habit forming. So it's what makes sports fun to watch, right? Why do we love watching a, a, a ball bounce around a pitch or a court? Uh, because there's variability about who's gonna win the game. Uh, why is news intriguing? Well, the first three letters of news, N-E-W, is new. It's what's different, what changed, what's variable, what we don't know. It's what makes a book uh, fun to read to get to the end. It's what makes a movie interesting to watch. And what It's what makes gambling so engaging. It's about that uncertainty of reward. Hmm. So just like a slot machine has variability built in, that's what makes it so engaging and to some people addictive. Hmm. The same is true for our news feeds. So when you open up the Facebook app and there's that news feed and there's uncertainty around what you might find, what do people post, what do the comments say, how many likes does something get, high degree of variability that keeps you pecking and checking. Yeah, right. The, the fourth step, which is the, probably the most critical, is what we call the investment phase. The investment phase is where the user puts something into the product to make it better and better with use. So unlike products that are made out of atoms as opposed to bits, you know, everything in the physical world, my shirt, this table, this chair, everything in the physical world depreciates. It loses value with wear and tear. But habit-forming products do the opposite. They appreciate. They get better and better the more we use them. And so when we think about a product like Facebook, the way it gets better is by the more data that we put into the product. So every time you like, friends, share, comment, 
you're building data for the algorithms to then show you better content in the future. So you are co-creating the product in real time based on the data you put into the product. So that eventually what they're doing is that they're loading the next trigger so that next time they know what to send you, that external trigger prompting you to come back once again based on the investment you made in the product in the past. And so that's how they create this, mm. this hook loop. Now, eventually, they don't even require the external triggers at all. For a habit-forming product to become a habit, mm. it becomes triggered not just by an external trigger, but by an internal trigger. And this is really where the habit is formed. An internal trigger is not about what's happening outside of you. It's what's happening inside of you. When you're feeling lonely, check Facebook. When you're uncertain, Google. When you're bored, oh, lots of solutions, right? Watch the news, watch sports, watch, uh, uh, check Reddit, check Pinterest, check stock prices, lots of things you can do when you're feeling uncomfortable, right? And so all of these products are spurred by these internal triggers that we seek to escape. So eventually, we don't just check Facebook because we get some kind of ping or ding on our phone. We check it when we're feeling bored or lonely or uncertain. And so we check the, the these these uh, products impulsively, right? We're doing it out of habit, little or no conscious thought. And that's really where the habit is formed so that the company eventually doesn't even have to send you any external triggers. You're triggering yourself. And so at what point does that, does that loop potentially unravel when you start looking at levels of attrition do users reach levels of satiation that can perhaps unravel that loop and if so like what are the some of the things that companies like facebook need to avoid so as not to satiate the user to the point where you know they no longer want to use or engage in that loop yeah so as, as powerful as this psychology is uh it's not mind control yeah right yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day step back here we're you know we're not we're not injecting instagram we're not freebasing <laughs> facebook we're, we're not Snapchat, i love it uh, i love that social media companies right so this is certainly something that if a user uh says to themselves hey you know what this this isn't really benefiting me i i don't really like this i i don't like what it's doing this isn't a good use of my time they will bounce right they will churn away and stop using your product and so that's something that that the, these comp tech companies are very very concerned about and we see that manifesting i mean there's not a single one of these uh, these tech giants that hasn't in fact implemented tactics to help you limit the use of their products mm. right so uh, uh the the apple uh iphone now comes with this screen time feature uh google's devices now come with this google well-being initiative all these things that you can use to help you use your device less mm. why that doesn't make any sense what kind of product would want you to use it less right uh in, not unless the government makes them right well not exactly uh if you look at actually what happened with seat belts so seat belts started uh, being manufactured into cars 19 years before any law mandated it. Why? Because people want to buy safer cars. And that's exactly what's happening with our technology, that they know if they don't help people limit their use of these products, they will overuse them and say, this sucks. I don't want to use this anymore. I'm going to cancel my account. I'm going to stop using this altogether. I'm going to look for some alternative. So we always have to be very, very careful uh, not to make our product something that people regret using. Uh, because remember, with, with there, there are two types of, of, of uh, manipulation. Manipulation on its own is not necessarily a bad term. It has a negative connotation, but the word itself, it, by definition, is not a negative thing because there are two types of manipulation. There's coercion, 
which is helping, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, there's persuasion, yeah. which is helping people do things they want to do. Yeah. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's okay. coercion, yeah, okay. which is getting people to do things they don't want to do. So as business owners, we never want to coerce people, right? I mean, you can, you can make people do things they don't want to do once, but of course people aren't idiots. They wake up and they say, hey, I didn't want to do that. Not only will they not do business with you anymore, they're going to tell all their friends not to do business with you. So coercive tactics are never good business. They're, of course, unethical. Persuasion, on the other hand, is wonderful, right? We want our technology to help us exercise, to help us save money, to help us connect with loved ones, to form healthy habits. That's a wonderful thing. And I want us to use these tactics uh, to help build healthy habits. Uh, because, of course, if we don't, if we abuse our, uh, the, our users, they will dump us. Mm. And so when we look at this model, like it's quite an elegant model, how would you, in the digital environment, that makes a lot of sense, how would you overlay that in a physical environment, say in like a retail play, whether it be a retail outlet or a bakery or you know a restaurant or, or, or something that's got um, shop frontage? Sure. So the, the number one criteria is that the product has to be used with sufficient frequency. frequency. Yeah. So as an angel investor, I've been I've been uh, investing in many companies over the past several years. That's the that's the first reason why I will tell a, a company that I don't think they'll form a, a habit, uh, either in my consulting practice or as an angel investor, is if the product is not used with sufficient frequency. Mm -hmm. So if it's not within about a week's time or less, very hard to change a consumer habit. But if people do interact with a product within a week's time or less, we can form a habit online, offline. It doesn't matter. Uh, anywhere where we can change people's behavior with little or no conscious thought so that they are deciding to, to do a particular behavior, uh, uh, you know, out of habit. They're not asking themselves, you know, which is the better product. Think about, it, for example, on Google, you know, when was the last time you asked yourself, hmm, I wonder where I should search today? No, we don't ask ourselves if Bing is any better than Google. We just Google it with little or no conscious thought. Uh, almost the way that if you're in the habit of saying, oh, that's my local coffee shop. Every morning I go to that coffee shop because that's that's my habit. You don't question and say, oh, I wonder if the coffee shop across the street might have a better cup of coffee. Uh, and it, it's interesting because it seems like it's about the coffee. But if you look at how people form their habits, there's so much else that actually shapes the perception of the product. Mm. So how can we turn this off online, uh, This that what we see from these online companies into offline behaviors as well? Think about, for example, why you go back to your local coffee shop. I mean, pick a business that you form a habit with, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, your hairdresser or your, your local coffee shop. You know, if think about that daily habit or, you know, weekly habit that you go back to, for example, with your coffee shop, it's not just about the quality of the coffee. It's also about the proximity, right? The external trigger. Do you see that, that coffee shop on your way to work? Is it easy to get to the action phase? Uh, when you come into the coffee shop, does the barista remember you or is it just here's your coffee, get out of here, right? Why, why is that stuff so important? Uh, when when, a, barista, when the, uh, uh, a person who works at the counter remembers your name, remembers your order, that's investment. Just like you would invest data into mm -hmm. Facebook, you're investing data into that relationship with that person behind the counter. So if you walk in and they say, hey, Nir, is it a double espresso today? Hey, great. I've invested in that. That means that if I go to the coffee shop next door and they don't know me from Adam, I'm less likely to come back because I've already invested in this relationship with this other provider. So you're the, you're the master of developing habits. And, and with your second book, 
it seems to me you're also showing people how to unravel the bad habits. So, and that's right. why I love the the perspective that you take because you, you basically, it's the perfect bookend. So this is the model to get people um, hooked. What is the model to get yourself unhooked? Like if you're, you know, if you're, in, if you're too invested in a, in a habit that's perhaps not giving you the return that you're looking for, for a range of different reasons, how do we unhook ourselves? Yeah, yeah. So, th so this is why I, I, I uh, wrote about both sides mm. of the story that uh, there, you know, we can use habits for good. We have good habits in our life, and we can utilize those good habits to improve our our well being. But then, when you study habits and behavior for so long, you also reveal a lot about how to break the bad habits. Mm. And so that's what indistractable is all about. Because you know, it's it's really up to us. Uh, you know, it's not our fault that the world is such a potentially distracting place. It's not your fault that Facebook exists, that your cell phone is is so engaging, that uh, there's so much crazy news happening in the world that wants to distract you. None of that stuff is your fault, but it is your responsibility because this stuff isn't going away. We have to learn how to deal with the world we live in, uh, or else it's going to deal with us, right? Uh, and so we have to make sure that we live our life and 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 pay attention the way we choose. You know, there's a reason we call it paying attention. We don't give attention; we pay we attention. Why do we use that terminology? It's very similar to how we pay with money, mm. right? So when you pay with dollars and cents, you don't stand on the street corner and say, "Hey, whoever wants my cash, here, here's a five, here's a twenty, just take my money." We're judicious about how we spend our money. But when it comes to our time and attention, the, something that we pay attention to, we just give it to anybody who wants it, right? Yeah, uh, you're, you're, you know, the, something stupid on Twitter, here you go. Uh, something in the news, here you go. Your boss needs something, your kids need something, here you go. Take my time and attention, as much of it as you want. And it's, 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 it's funny if you think about it because we spend so much of our time and money protecting our stuff, right? We have security systems on our home. We have alarms on our cars. We put our money in vaults, in bank accounts. But when it comes to our time, do we don't really protect it, right? We let anybody take it as much as we want. And so I think that this the critical skill of this century is the power to be indistractable. Mm. Because whether it's uh, being fully present with the people you love uh, in your life, whether it's doing the work that you know you want to do, whether it's taking care of your physical health, your mental health, all of these things require you to have the ability to decide how to spend your time and your attention and your attention because that is really what becomes your life. So to become indistractable, there's another four steps here. I love four step models. And so I broke it down uh, over the past five years of research that went into this book into the four most important steps to becoming indistractable. And this is something that anyone can do, uh, whether you're looking to get in shape, but you find yourself not working out when you said you would, or you find yourself getting to work and getting distracted by everything but the important project you need to do. Or like my case, I was with my daughter, and as opposed to being fully present with her, I was checking my phone. Mm. You know, this is this will change your life in every facet of your life that, that deserves your full attention. So there's really four basic steps. So the first step is to master those internal triggers. So we talked about those internal triggers earlier and how products and services will attach themselves to those internal triggers. Mm -hmm. So the first step to becoming indistractable is to realize that procrastination and distraction, it's not a character flaw. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. It's simply that you don't have the tools, the habits to deal with these uncomfortable emotional states in a healthier manner. Mm. So as opposed to, oh, I'm feeling bored, I gotta turn on the news, or I'm feeling lonely, 
I got to check some social media uh, network or I'm feeling bored so that I got to find something to occupy my brain as opposed to that impulsive uh, dependency on something to take our mind off of our discomfort. We learn to harness that discomfort as rocket fuel to help drive us towards what we want to do as opposed to the things that distract us that we don't want to do. So that's step number one, mastering the internal triggers, because here's, here's a very important lesson. I hope people will write down time management is pain management. Let me say that again. Time management is pain management. Look, I have spent the past five years reading all the research about productivity and focus and time management and all this stuff. I read all the guru's books. None of the techniques work. None of the life hacks, none of the, the tips and tricks are effective. If first and foremost, you don't understand and deal with what is the discomfort you are trying to escape. Because whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, if we don't understand what are we looking to escape from, we will always find distraction one way or the other. So step number one, master the internal triggers. Mm. Step number two is about making time for traction. So the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. That both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that help you live out your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. That's traction. The opposite of traction, by definition, is distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you away from what you plan to do, anything that is not in line with your values and pulls you away from becoming the person you want to become. I love that. So this is really important because what this means is that anything that you plan for is fine, right? I'm not one of these tech critics that tells you, oh, you know, the technology is hijacking your brain. It's addicting everybody. That's excuses. It's not scientifically backed whatsoever. Anything you want to do with your time is fine as long as you do it on your schedule and according to your values. You wanna play video games? Great. You wanna go on social media? Wonderful. But the way we turn these distractions into traction is by making time for it, by putting time in our calendars. And so I show you in the book why to-do lists are destroying your productivity. To-do lists are one of the worst things you can do for your personal productivity. And I show you a much better technique that, that uh, you'll learn about that helps you make sure you do what you say you're going to do by turning your values into time. So that's mm -hmm. step two, make time for traction. Step three is about hacking back the external triggers. So this is where we deal with the pings, the dings, the rings, all the things in our outside environment that can lead us towards distraction. So we go through how to hack back email, how to hack back meetings, how to hack back group chat, how to hack back your phone, your computer. Your kids, right? We love our kids, but they can be incredibly distracting when we're trying to get our work done. So I walk you through every single one of these things. And I teach you how to hack back. The fourth step is to prevent distraction with pacts. And this is probably the most powerful of the four strategies because this is where we really begin to shape our identity, where we start making promises to ourselves and other people to hold ourselves accountable so that as the last line of defense, when we feel the urge to get distracted, there's a, a, a firewall that prevents us from getting distracted. So we can use what's called effort pacts, price pacts, and identity pacts to make sure we don't get distracted when we feel these urges towards doing something we don't want to do. So it's really about using these four techniques in concert. Master internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, 
and prevent distraction with PACs. Now that's that's the overview. There's of course a lot more to it. And it's a beautiful model, and I, I, I can I can I can see some some incredible work has gone into it. But when when you talk about PACs, are you talking about public declarations or public commitments or packed with self self commitment or a bit of combination? Uh, of? Uh, both, yeah. both. So there's three types of pacts. There's an effort pack where there's some bit of friction in between you and something you don't want to do. So let me give you a, a great example. So uh, a few years ago, uh, my wife and I noticed that night after night we were going to bed later and later. Uh, so, you know, everybody who hasn't heard that sleep is important. We all know sleep is important. And yet I wasn't doing what I said I was going to do. I wasn't getting to bed on time, let alone the toll it was taking on our sex life, right? That we weren't getting to, to be intimate because we were constantly fondling our devices and stroking mm -hmm. our iPad. And so what did we do? I went to the hardware store and I bought us a an outlet timer. Now this outlet timer will when you plug anything you plug into it will turn on or off at a certain time of day or night so every night in my household at 10 p.m my internet router and my screens on my monitor mm. shut off at 10 p.m now could i turn it back on of course i could i could go and fiddle with the internet router and you know plug it back in but i put in some effort mm. some friction in between me and something i don't want to do the distraction so as the last line of defense, as the firewall to getting distracted. Now, do not do this first, okay? This will backfire if you do it in the wrong order. You have to first deal with the internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back the external triggers. Then the last, fourth, final step is to prevent distraction with packs. Mm. So that's an effort pact. We also have what's called a price pact, where there's some kind of monetary disincentive to, to getting distracted. Yep. This has actually been shown to be the most effective smoking cessation study in history. So I use this same study as an example of what we can do to fight distraction, not just to get us to stop smoking, but to do all kinds of things. Stop scrolling the internet so much, make sure we, we don't delay our workout, whatever it might be, we can actually use the same psychology there. And then finally, we have what's an identity pact. An identity pact is where we have some kind of moniker, some kind of name that we call ourselves. And this actually comes from the psychology of religion that when people declare themselves to be a certain thing, a noun, whether it's a, a, a Christian or a vegetarian or a keto or whatever it might be, when you declare yourself to be a certain identity, you become much more likely to stay in line. So for example, you know, a vegetarian doesn't wake up in the morning and say, hmm, I wonder if I should have some, some bacon today for breakfast. No, a vegetarian doesn't eat meat. That's who they are. And so we can use that same psychology to become indistractable. And so that's why the book is called Indistractable. Indistractable sounds like indestructible. It's meant mm. to be an identity, a superpower. And so that's what I want people to, to call themselves and to describe themselves to other people when they say, oh, you know what? I don't answer every text message in, within two minutes of getting it. I'm indistractable. I do this kind of silly stuff that maybe is unusual from what most people do because I'm indistractable. And I think that indistractable people, uh, the, the, the world is going to bifurcate between people who allow their time and attention to be controlled by others and people who say, no, I decide how I will spend my time, my attention and my life because I am indistractable. And I, I like the correlation because I think distraction is actually probably the, the, the one of the greatest curses of the 21st century with this being bombarded with so much information. But like you say, there's a a responsibility all of us have, um, but being indistractable is certainly, I would say, the 
an emerging superpower requirement for what's coming and where we are right now. But I'm curious as to you, mate, like where you play now, like you're obviously playing at the, the interface of user experiences from a habit-forming way, which is probably one of the most valuable um, you know, pieces of science or art or the combination of both to any organization because obviously the more frequency of, of use, the, 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 the greater interaction, the greater potential for value. But how did you get into this? Like how did this all begin? Like wh where does your story begin? Yeah, so I started uh, a few companies before I started along this line of research. So I'm an entrepreneur first and foremost. First, I got into the solar energy business back in 2003. I started a solar energy company uh, that was then acquired. So you were an entrepreneur before academic. Oh yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, I right. didn't think I would. I didn't think I would ever become an academic. I, I actually started this line of research because I wanted to figure out what to do next as a business. Yeah, right. <laughs> I had sold my second company at that point. And I had this hypothesis that habits were going to matter, that uh, as the interface shrank from desktop to laptop to now mobile phones and mobile device and uh, uh, these wearable devices, habits become increasingly important. So I looked around and I, I looked for a book on how to build habit forming products and I couldn't find such a book. So I decided to do my own research and write it for myself. And I started publishing on my blog and then my blog started getting a following and then people started asking, hey, can you put this in a book? I want to share this with my team. So I self-published a book, and then it became uh, it got picked up by by Port, uh, uh, by Random House, uh, and then uh, then this kind of became what I did next, and so I kind of became my my next venture, and I haven't stopped since. I, I love it. One of the things that that you haven't mentioned in your in any of your methodology, um, especially when it comes to the, the the hook, is the aspect of community. I'm curious from your perspective. How much of an influence does a community have or does the aspect of community have when it comes to, you know, building those, um, th those hooks and those habits? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, th we talked about the variable rewards earlier, you know, the Skinnerian uh, uh, intermittent reinforcement. And there are three types of variable rewards. We have rewards of the hunt, rewards of the self, and to your question, rewards of the tribe. So any type of reward that has some variability, that so has some mystery, comes in these three forms. So rewards of the hunt are all about the search for uh, money, things, information, right? Hunting for that next reward. Uh, then we have rewards of the self, which is all about uh, mastery, competency, completion, control. So uh, finishing the to-dos in your to-do list, opening your emails, uh, getting to the next level in the video game are all about rewards of the self. But the most powerful, mm. the most long lasting of the three variable rewards types are what we call rewards of the tribe. Rewards of the tribe are things that feel good, that have this element of variability and come from other people. So whether it's about uh, competition, cooperation, uh, partnership, interacting with other people is incredibly rewarding. We are a very social species. And so we see in all sorts of products and services, wherever you find a community, you will find variable rewards of the tribe. Yeah, right. And so what's next for, for you, mate? You've, you've written the book on how to create the habits. You've written a book on how to break the habits. Where do you go from here? You know, I really believe that becoming indistractable is the skill of the century. So I am running as fast as I can to, uh, you know, the, the, the war I am fighting is that I think people will be persuaded to believe one of two things. They will be persuaded to believe that technology is the problem that it's the big tech company's fault. And this is a very popular narrative you read in every newspaper, ironically enough, because it gets more clicks, mm. right? The media companies 
love to sell fear. That's how they get people to click on their articles, right? And sell more advertising. They're in the same exact business model as Facebook. They sell your eyeballs to the highest bidder. So that's one narrative that is very popular these days and is getting more traction because people love to blame something outside themselves. Mm -hmm. The problem is you can't win that war, right? Facebook isn't going anywhere. And let me tell you, distraction is nothing new. Plato talked about this very same problem 2,500 years before the iPhone, the Greek philosopher Plato called it akrasia in the Greek, the tendency to do things against our better interests. People have always been distracted. This is not a new problem. Facebook and, and the iPhone did not create this problem. So the solution can't be to blame stuff outside ourselves. If you hold your breath waiting for these companies to change, you're going to suffocate. So the other perspective is to say, wait a minute, there's something we can do here. Why would we wait? We can do something right now to become indistractable. And so that's what I'm trying to do is to win hearts and minds and to really start a movement of people who say, actually, we can do something about this. We can become indistractable. And you know what? The problem is much bigger than just our tech. It's about distraction in all the domains of our life. I, I once read a report, I think it was back in 1992 from Forbes, that the average consumer in 1992 was receiving about 3,000 commercial messages a day. Uh, and then I saw an update of that report. I think it was around 217, 218. And the number was around 18,000 to 20 odd thousand, you know, commercial messages every single day. So it appeared to me that it, it, this has been a, a problem since the early philosophers. And it's one that's only going to get significantly worse as we start to include more technology, more information, more processing power. So, yeah, I actually think you're, you're on the money here, mate. Like, in, like as, a, as, a, as a formula, as a skill set, as a product, yeah, I think teaching people how to unravel the, the the habits that they've created, there's a huge market for it. And we're seeing this, obviously, and you're probably more aware of this than I am. But, um, you know, even with uh, the, you know, certain areas of the world treating internet as an addiction themselves and treating gaming as an addiction itself, it, that to me points to, and like you say, it's, it's, it's not the game that's a problem. It's not the alcohol that's a problem. It's the individual's ability to regulate, you know, what it is that they're doing. And I think um, what you're talking about here with Indistractable is a really good way for people to learn how to regulate, you know, their exposure to, to, to what it is that they're doing. So, mate, you've got a couple of books. If people want to find out more about these books, where can they find them? Sure. So my blog is at nearandfar.com. It's spelled like my first name, N-I-R-A-N-D-F-A-R. So near like my first name, andfar.com. And if you go to nearandfar.com, there's actually an 80-page complimentary workbook that we couldn't fit into the final edition of Indistractable, but it's there for you for free. Uh, you can you can you can get it whether you buy the book or not. I don't really care, but uh, it can help you on your path to get started to become indistractable, and that's totally free at nearandfar.com. And if you are interested in the book, it's called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life, and it's available wherever books are sold. We'll put a link, uh, we'll put a link below. Nia, I really appreciate your time, mate, and you've certainly started um, unraveling a few hooks in my head with this conversation. Uh, I hope we can, we can chat again at some point in the future. That'd be great. Thank you so much for having thank me. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank Nia Ayal. Thank you, brother. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know that your comments 
help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, KerwinRay.com, and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.